Have you ever had a conversation with someone about the existence of God? Ever had a conversation with the, someone who, with, about the existence of God where they struggle with the idea or the concept of God? If you have, it's not long before there's a question that always seems to come up. It's, it's unavoidable. And, and perhaps, maybe it's even a question that you yourself have wrestled with. And the question is, why would a loving God allow, ba- good, allow bad things to happen to good people? Why would a loving God allow bad things to happen to good people? And often when that question comes up, it comes from this place of deep hurt. Sometimes it comes from someone who watched a loved one die, and they just can't wrap their head around this perceived injustice in the world when there's a God who loves them. And in the middle of this pandemic, many of us wondered what would happen with people in, the, in a crisis of this magnitude. People wondered whether people would come towards God or they'd push God away. And while the pandemic has caused more people to consider their own mortality and and think about the afterlife and think about God, for admittedly some of them, they've collided with this question along the way. Why would a loving God allow bad things to happen to good people? I, I think we've all asked that question at some point or another. But the interesting thing is this. When we ask this question or someone asks this question, we ask the question, when, and, and we focus on the bad things out there. We never focus on the bad things in here. Because let's face it, have you ever done something bad? Of course. But you're thinking, Pastor Roy, I, I, I mean, I mean when, I'm, when I'm talking about bad things in the world, I'm talking about really bad. Like, not the things that I do, but bad is bad. Evil is evil. And what makes this so interesting, because when, when someone asks this question, the focus is always on the bad out there. No one ever says this. Why would a loving God allow me to happen? Or if God is such a loving God, he would have done something about me by now. We don't say that because my bad is not the problem in the world. It's the bigger bad, right? But like we said, Bad is bad and evil is evil. God, when God looks at sin, that's what we call it in the church world. When he looks at sin, it's a little more black and white. See, for God, it's either it's sin or it's not sin. And you can't have it both ways. So if you want God to eliminate anything sinful in one big giant swoop, well, you better duck. And so if sin is sin, I would then have to conclude when I say I don't believe in God or that God exists because sin exists, or there's, or there's evil in the world, then I must also say, God can't exist because I exist. And we would never say that. And so we're stuck. So how does God hate sin, yet I exist, and, and I do things that God would consider sin, and yet God loves me at the same time, and he doesn't eliminate me with the rest of sin? And John, one of Jesus' disciples, would say to you, let me help you understand because John spent time with Jesus and watched him intently for the, over the course of three years. And as he watched, he watched as God, God in the flesh coexisted with evil men. See, we think at times that when we look around and we read, that we read the news or we're on the internet, we think that we live in the most vile and, and evil time in history. But John would tell you that there's things that happen today that they're so bad But the majority of society believes that they're morally wrong. But in the Roman world, those same things were socially acceptable by by most people. The things that, that, that 
The things that we do that are corrupt, we do in the shadows today. The Romans did them in the light and they felt no shame. And this was the world that Jesus was born into. And so John would say, I walked and I ministered and I lived alongside perfect holiness. And he did not shy away from the darkness of men. Now make no mistake, his beha- their behavior grieved him. Yet he did not shun them and he was not repulsed by them. God coexisted with evil and I'm going to lay it out for you. So we're in part seven of our seven-part series, Seven Signs. And over the course of the series, we've looked at the seven events that John witnessed that led him to the conclusion that Jesus was the Messiah. He was God in the flesh. Now, if you missed any of those, those messages, they are online on Facebook or our YouTube channel. You can go back and watch all of them. But this is the last one in this series, and it's the seventh sign. John tells us in his writing that he witnessed so much more than what he documented. So many more interactions, so many more miracles. And to tell you everything, well, there would just be a massive book and it would distract you from the seven that he wanted you to see. He refers to them as signs, not miracles, because a miracle is a standalone event. But a sign is specific. It it points to the identity of who Jesus actually is. And And the purpose of his writing was so focused He doesn't want you to get caught up in the miracles alone. He doesn't want you to be so awe-inspired by the actual miracle that you actually miss the one who did the miracle. So his goal is for you to see through his eyes that this was so compelling, this was so obvious, a truth that changed his life and the course of humanity. If you haven't been tracking with us us through the series, let me catch you up. During Jesus' ministry, we see Jesus' pattern where he spends some time in Galilee and in the the north of Israel. This is where he's from. This is where he grew up. And, And he's embraced by the people of this area. They relate to him. It's here that he can kind of let his guard down, so to speak. But a good portion of his ministry is done in the southern part of the country, in the the region of Judea, where the the holy city of Jerusalem is. And Jerusalem is not so friendly to Jesus. While there's people there who love him, there are many that want to see him go down. And especially any time he engages with the religious leaders of the temple, they do not like him. They, They feel like he threatens their way of life, and they're uncomfortable with the way he threatens that, but also they're uncomfortable with the way the lesser halves of society feel about him. He's, he's a threat to start a revolution, and they don't want that. And so last week, we, we watched as Jesus heals a man. He heals the person on the Sabbath. And this just puts an even bigger target on his back amongst the Pharisees, the religious elite, the religious leaders of Jerusalem. And so we pick up the story in John chapter 10. We'll spend a little bit of time there, then we're going to move on to John chapter 11. Jesus is at the temple, and and up to this point, he's angered the Pharisees with some of his claims. He's made claims that associated him with God. Maybe they didn't, maybe he wasn't completely blunt about it, but there was no doubt, if you were looking for it, that he was associating himself as the Son of God. And so they ask him a question outright that they've been dying to ask him in verse 24. The people surrounded him and asked, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. See, no more speaking in code, Jesus. We don't want to come to our own conclusion, even though it's obvious. We want to hear it straight from you. We want you to say it. Are you claiming to be the Messiah? And Jesus replied, I've already told you. And you don't believe me. 
I mean, the proof is in the work that I do in my Father's name. He says, I told you already. And I didn't just tell you, I showed you. But despite what I said, and despite the things I've done, you're choosing not to believe. And they have all the evidence they need, but they will not allow themselves to come to the conclusion of what was obvious. Perhaps that's like some of the people that you know. Maybe it's even perhaps like you. You have enough evidence for the existence of God around you, but because you don't want to come to the conclusion, or because that person that you associate yourself with doesn't want to come to that conclusion, you or they say, you know, I need more proof. I need more proof. I need it to be a little more obvious. So up to this point, Jesus has said things and done things that left a little room for doubt of his identity. But only if you dig your heels in, only if you're choosing to be willfully blind. I mean, even then. For everyone else, it was right in front of their face, plain as day. But what Jesus was about to do, what Jesus was about to do was going to force even his most ardent opposers to pick a side. Jesus was about to do something that they couldn't ignore, right under their noses, because it was easy to dismiss anything Jesus did in Galilee, because Galilee was like a five-day walk. And so, by the time you heard about it, it was just rumors. And rumors from this little fishing village, the, the, those in Jerusalem, they didn't even think too much about it. Because things like that, they heard rumors like that a lot. But Jesus was about to do something just outside their city, right in their own backyard, that would force the religious leaders of the day to officially take a stance. We pick it up in John chapter 11, verse 1. A man named Lazarus was sick. He lived in Bethany with his sisters, Mary and Martha. Now, Bethany was about a day walk just to the east of Jerusalem. That's important to know because, again, this is a neighboring community. It's close enough that people associated in the temple were going to be there to witness the seventh sign. They were, they were, they were, going, to, they were going to know people directly that saw the seventh sign. Verse 3, so the two sisters sent a message to Jesus telling him, Lord, your dear friend is very sick. Some translations say, call Lazarus the one that you love. This family is very, very close to Jesus, closer than just followers. They're, they're actually like family. Have you ever had a family friend that maybe growing up you called them aunt or uncle, and they actually weren't even blood relatives to you, but they were so close, they were closer than your aunts or uncles, that you just called them that anyway? Well, this is like the relationship that Jesus has with these, these three siblings. He has a special devotion to them. Verse 4, but when Jesus heard about it, he said, Lazarus's sickness will not end in death. And when Jesus says this, he doesn't, of course, they don't know this at the time, but when Jesus says this, Lazarus has already died. He died while the messenger was en route to find Jesus. He continues, no, it happened for the glory of God so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. Again, this is one of those statements that should make you sit up. Much like last week, Jesus is saying that sickness can bring glory to God. So wait, Jesus, you recognize bad things can happen to good people? To which John would say, yep. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind. I mean, I walked and I lived with the goodest. That's not even a word. But I walked with the best. I, I would later witness the most excruciating uh, death, the, the most excruciating things happen to him. The worst thing happened to the best person. 
but I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me tell you what happens next with Lazarus. So the gospel doesn't tell us the exact location where Jesus is at this point. But, but according to scholars, Jerusalem is down in the south, and just to the east is, east is Bethany, and a little bit kind of north of there is, a, is a, air, a region called Perea. And that's where Jesus is believed to be. So when the messenger arrives and finds Jesus, verse 5 begins this way. So although Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, We'll just pause there for a moment. There's a reason why John writes this, that although Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, the reason he writes this is because what happens next would cause, cause John's readers to second guess that Jesus actually does love them. So he, he feels the need to actually reinforce that. Verse 6 says, He stayed where he was for the next two days, which is confusing. And John would say, trust me, you think you're confused. We were all confused. Because we watched, we watched Jesus heal complete strangers of their sickness. And when Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick, we couldn't understand why he just didn't get up and rush off at once. When that messenger showed up and we heard the news that Lazarus was dying, we all just started packing up our stuff because we were expecting that we were just going to go. Again, John felt the need to include this statement in verse 5 to tell us that Jesus actually loved this family. He feels that need because it just, it doesn't look like it because Jesus doesn't move. Sometimes we feel like that. Sometimes we look at our circumstances and we look at God's timing and we wonder, Jesus, why are you not rushing into my situation? Don't you even care? But this is one of the reasons that John came to the conclusion that what he was witnessing weren't just merely miracles, they were signs. Jesus had a plan, a plan that would undeniably out him as the Son of God. So the messenger heads back, and imagine being that messenger. You somehow have to explain to these grieving sisters that, you, that I went, I found Jesus, but he's not coming. In fact, he didn't seem to be interested at all in returning with me. Then two days go by, and all of a sudden Jesus packs up and says, disciples, let's go back to Judea. Okay, guys, let's roll out, and we're going to head through Bethany. And I can only imagine the look on the disciples' faces. I mean, they'd be exchanging looks of bewilderment, and, and not only that, but concern. Because the last time they were in Judea, they, they were at the temple. And, and if you read further in chapter 10, further down, after Jesus makes this claim that he is the Son of God, they tried to pelt him with stones and kill him. And so the disciples have two concerns. Number one, why are we going to Bethany when it's pretty obvious that the window of opportunity to help Lazarus has closed? And number two, we don't want to go to Judea. Judea is a dangerous place. I mean, Jesus, you say things and you do things that people don't like. They get mad. And when they get mad, they throw stones at you. And the problem with that is, is that some of them don't even have good aim. And they hit us. And they don't want to go. So they say in verse 8, his disciples objected, Rabbi, only a few days ago, the people in Judea, they were trying to stone you. Are you going there again? Remember last week I said it feels like Jesus sometimes gives an answer to a question that's not even asked or a different question? 
And here he goes again, verse 9. Jesus replied, there are 12 hours of daylight every day. During the day, people can walk safely. They can see because they have light of this world. But at night, there's a danger of stumbling because they have no light. It just feels like Jesus has broken, broken into the segment of the show, Random Facts with Jesus. And the disciples are looking at each other, and I think Andrew maybe looks at Thomas and says, so are we going? But Jesus is trying to get them to see something different. He, he, he would say to them, okay, guys, you can stay here. You can choose safety. You can choose comfort. But if you do, you will miss an opportunity. And it's a word picture. The 12 hours of day, this is your opportunity. The opportunity to follow the light while the light is here. And if you choose not to follow the light, you will discover that darkness will come upon you. And in the darkness, you will stumble around separated from God trying to make sense of this life. A safe life living in a created world that doesn't make sense when it's apart from the creator. But if you follow, if you'll take the opportunity that is right in front of you, yes, there's risk. Yes, you won't always be celebrated. Yes, you may have to duck a rock or two. But if you will follow the light of the world, I will bring light into your world. And ultimately through you, I will bring light to the rest of the world. In verse 11, he says, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but now I will go and wake him up. Again, the looks by the disciples would be priceless. Because right now, Jesus' whole walking in the light speech just kind of just went right over their head. And all they hear is, let's go to danger land to wake up a guy who's long dead. And they don't want to go. They don't want to go. Besides, if he's actually sleeping, Jesus, that's great news for someone who's sick. You don't wake a, a sleeping sick guy. That's part of the recovery process. Just let the poor guy sleep. So they give Jesus some medical advice. Verse 12, Lord, if he's sleeping, he'll soon get better. They thought Jesus meant Lazarus was simply sleeping, but Jesus meant Lazarus had died. Jesus realized they, they don't understand what I'm talking about. So he just tells them clearly. Verse 14, Lazarus is dead. What? Jesus, the messenger just came like two days ago and you didn't do anything. And we were ready to rush you to his side, but you just, you wouldn't even go. And you told us in that moment that the sickness would not end in Lazarus's death. And now you're telling us he's dead? And they're so confused. And Jesus doesn't help the situation with his next statement. Verse 15 says, and for your sakes, I'm glad I wasn't there. For now, you will really believe. Come, let's go see him. That's a tough, that's a tough, tough verse to read. Because when I think of Jesus, I think of someone who is, who is kind and loving, compassionate. But when you read here what he says about his friend, who he loved, that I'm glad I wasn't there. That I'm glad that when Lazarus was in pain, I wasn't there. That when Mary and Martha were devastated as they watched their brothers slip away from this world, I'm glad I wasn't there. And it wasn't that he didn't care. And it wasn't that he was cold-hearted, as we will see later. But what he was about to do is he had a plan that he was going to perform a sign that would shed light on who had the power over death and sickness and pain, which is great news but it didn't seem like it at the time. And he says, come, let's go see him. Now the disciples are really confused. 
like, okay, let's grab our stuff and go. I mean, Lazarus is dead, but we're going to go see him. In a land where they hate us, and they're going to throw stuff at us. And Jesus is going to die. Lazarus is already dead, and we're probably going to die. And Thomas looks at the other disciples, and he says this. Let's go to and die with Jesus. We're all going to die. And so they go. But at this point, Jesus hasn't missed the chance. And at this point, Jesus just hasn't missed the chance to save Lazarus. He missed the whole funeral. He missed the burial. It is long past that opportunity. And so here comes Jesus and the disciples wandering into town. And John would say, it was so embarrassing. So embarrassing. I mean, we didn't want to go for other reasons, but now we're showing up late. I mean, like purposely late? I mean, you've heard of fashionably late? This was not that. I couldn't even look people in the eye when we rolled into town. Verse 17, when Jesus arrived at Bethany, he was told that Lazarus had already been in his grave for four days. Bethany was only a few miles down the road from Jerusalem, and many of the people who had come to console Martha and Mary in their, in their loss, when Martha got word that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, but Mary stayed in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd only been here, my brother would not have died, which is, this is interesting right there. This statement right there is interesting because maybe you've had this kind of conversation with God in the past. Just this raw, real emotion because something happened. This is, this is your fault, God. If you had to just come when I called on you, but you didn't, you didn't show up. And now it's your fault. And we know Jesus loved these people. And he's not even offended by Mar Martha's emotion. He's not offended by your emotion. And Martha, like us, is conflicted because she's like, Jesus, I'm mad, but you're my God. And my, my, my faith is in you, but I'm so upset. And she says this, but even, even now, I know that God will give you whatever you ask. I think Jesus looks at her and smiles. Verse 23 says this, your brother will rise again. And Martha thinks, Martha thinks Jesus has gone into pastor mode, sermon mode. I remember one of the first visitations I ever did as a, as a, a young youth pastor. I, I was riding along with my senior pastor who was taking me along on the, on the trip. And, and we're going to see a guy who was roughly my age at the time who had terminal cancer, only had months to live. And the doctors had just given them his, this diagnosis and and my, past, my senior pastor on the ride over said to me this, today, we just need to listen. Fight the urge to put an explanation to all of this. Fight the, fight the urge to, to give a verse to cling to or, or a sermon to listen, to listen to. In this moment, they just need to be loved. Later, they will have questions. But for now, just listen and love. And, and that's where Martha's at right now. And she thinks Jesus is trying to give a theological explanation about the afterlife and how one day Lazarus will, will rise to be with God in heaven. And she says, yes, Jesus, he will rise when everyone else rises at the last day. I get it, Jesus. But then Jesus says something that we quickly glance over. When, when we're reading through John's gospel, we, we glance over it because you really need to put yourself in Martha's shoes. And you need to really understand the range of emotions that she's feeling at the time to get the full impact. 
And I imagine in this moment, she's, she's angry, she's confused, she's upset, and she's, she's looking down, and she's sad, and she's disappointed in Jesus, but she doesn't want Jesus to see it in her eyes, and maybe she feels guilty about it. And, and she, Jesus is trying to offer condolences in this moment for her, and, and, and that's not what she needs right now. What she really wanted was a miracle. And I imagine he reaches out and he lifts her face, and his eyes meet hers. And he says these words, I am the resurrection and the life. It's like, Martha, I'm not here to offer you hollow words. I'm not even here to correct your theology. I'm here to show you something new about life and even what you know about death. I am the resurrection and the life. And what you believe about me will be the most important thing that you ever believe. I am God in your midst, and I have come to bring light and hope to a world that needs both. And imagine off to the side, John is watching all of this happening. So quiet. And then Jesus says, anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Anyone. Anyone. The Greek word for anyone means anyone. You, me, Jesus' audience, anyone who from the past, anyone in the future that puts their full trust in Jesus will live, even after dying. And John's trying to put all of this together. Because in the last few days, he heard Jesus say that Lazarus won't die, but now he's died. And now he hears him say that anyone who believes in him will die, but they won't. But Jesus is trying to lay out a framework for each of them and for us. That death is not the end. That death is just the doorway to eternity. And he looks at Martha. And Martha's got this mixture of pain and confusion on her face. And he says this to her, do you believe this, Martha? To which she responds, Yes, Lord, I've always believed you're in the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who's come into the world from God. She's like, Yes, Jesus. I mean, I, I believe I don't understand it. And in the middle of my pain, in the middle of my loss, even though if I was you, I would have done it different. I would have been here in time to, to help Lazarus. But I choose to put my faith in you. I, I choose to, to put my trust in you. I, I, don't ha I, I realize in this moment, I don't have to understand everything to believe something. I choose to believe you know something that I don't. And then Martha runs and gets Mary to tell, tell her that Jesus has arrived. And so Mary comes to see Jesus. And when Jesus sees Mary, he is pained by her pain. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him and he was deeply troubled. Now this anger is not at anyone in general. It's not, it's not the type of anger that you would think of. He was troubled. He was distressed by this whole situation. And he says this, where have you put him? And they told him, Lord, come and see. And this next verse this next verse is so short in words, but it reveals so much about our God. 
that even though he knew what, was about, what he was about to do, even though he knew how the story was going to end, he felt such strong compassion for these sisters. And it says in verse 35 that Jesus wept. Sometimes as a parent, our kids go through something that's painful, yet we recognize it as being necessary as part of their growth. And we know that if they endure it and come out the other side, they'll be all the better for it. But it causes us pain to see them in pain, even though we know the ending. Jesus' response to their pain sheds light for us that God empathizes with your pain, even when he knows how it's all going to turn out. And John, who watched it all play out, saw the raw emotion from Jesus. And he would never have guessed what was about to happen based on Jesus' grief. Because John would tell you Jesus was so emotionally moved. I was sure that he was powerless to change the situation. I was sure that he'd met the limits of his power and therefore he had no other option but to mourn with the mourners. But what I discovered that day was God is so moved by our pain even when he has the power to change the outcome. And I can tell you with confidence that he cares for you. He grieves with you and he loves you so much. And those that watched this interaction, well, they had their own side conversation because they were watching it all play and they couldn't figure it all out either. The people who were standing nearby said, you see how much he loved him? But some said, this man healed a blind man. I mean, we saw it, we heard about it. Couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? And it was this dilemma that sometimes you and I wrestle with. If God loves us, and it appears he does, and if he loves us so much, why wouldn't he answer each prayer? And when he doesn't, although he cares, it must mean he can't, right? And that's what people were, de- were de- debating privately over to the side. And as it turns out, Jesus, Jesus could have. He just didn't. But Jesus, in this last of John 7 signs, he captures our story. He captures our lifetime in the midst of this story. He captures our pain. He captures our disappointment. He captures our, our, our prayers, our seemingly unanswered prayers. He captures God's compassion and our, and our outcome in this one story. And he does so to give all future generations hope. Verse 39, roll the stone aside, Jesus told them. And I imagine there was a gasp throughout the crowd. And all eyes were fixed on Jesus and the tomb. How could you not be? But Martha, the dead man's sister, protested, Lord, he's been dead for four days. The smell will be terrible. Like, Jesus, I don't think you understand. You're not just like slightly late. You're days late. Please don't go in there. And Jesus responds to her, didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory if you believe? And Jesus would say the same to you and the same to me. If you believe, you will see God's glory. To which our response is, but I want to see it now. Lord, I I don't want to wait for your time. I want to see your glory now. I want you to show up when I call. Why why were you late? Why were you late, Jesus? To which Jesus says, it only seems like I'm late. I'm never late. 
And I want you to know that I know that you want to see God's glory right now. But if you put your trust in me and you stay patient, you will see God's glory. Verse 41. So they rolled the stone aside. You can hear a pin drop. Then Jesus looked up to the heavens and he prays. Father, thank you for hearing me. You always hear me. But I said it out loud for the sake of all these people standing here, so they will believe you sent me. Which basically says this. This prayer is so important, not only for Jesus' audience, but for everyone that would later hear these words or read these verses. And what he says is this. God, you and I are one. We're so connected. You know what's about to happen here. I know what's about to happen here. But it's important that everyone here knows this and believes that the Father and Son are one. Then the most, one of the most dramatic moments in the entire Bible, Jesus shouts, Lazarus, come out. And John who's retelling this story as an older man, and perhaps some of the other stories that, that, that he, he had, were starting, some of the details are a little fuzzy, the ones he didn't record. But he will never, ever forget what he saw next. Verse 44, And the dead man came out, his hands and his feet bound in grave cloths, his face wrapped in a headcloth. The crowd was likely stunned. I mean, wouldn't you be? And then John writes something that almost goes without saying. Many of the people who were with Mary believed in Jesus when they saw this happen. I'm sure they did. I'm sure they did. And, and now the line was drawn in the sand. It was right in the Pharisees' backyard, and they could no longer ignore Jesus. The land was buzzing about what had happened. And the Pharisees, well, they now had a full-blown problem. Verse 53, a little further down, after the Pharisees have heard all about this story and, it, and, the, and the buzz that's going across the land, says this. So from that time on, the Jewish leaders began to plot Jesus' death. See, now it was either fully embrace Jesus as the Messiah or fully deny. It was hard to be in the middle on this one. Many embraced, but the most evil among them, they they would never, despite what they heard, despite what they saw, would never embrace Jesus. And for John, the table was set for the most defining moment of his faith. See, John says, when, when Lazarus walked out of that tomb, there was no more confusion. Many believed in Jesus because of what they saw. John, John says, I, I don't know where your faith is at, but I didn't believe just because someone told me that I need to believe. I didn't put my faith in faith. It was a process. And over the course of his gospel, John lays out seven signs that would be revealed to him. That, that this seemingly impersonal God that he'd learned about as a boy came to earth, walked amongst them, showed compassion, taught them love, taught them mercy and humility and grace and meekness, characteristics that up to this point he was taught were weakness for a man. But it was these characteristics that this group would embrace that Jesus taught that would change the world. And even skeptics admit something happened in the first century for the Christian faith. 
that compelled this underdog group of people to begin a movement, a movement that had no business ever making it out of the first century, especially when the consequences for believing and sharing the message was death and persecution. But they saw something. It wasn't faith in faith. Something happened. And for John, seven seemingly random miracles pointed to the identity of who his rabbi was. And then he sealed the deal. Because as he predicted, he would take the evil and the sin on his shoulders. Your evil, my sin. And he would carry them to the cross and die for each and every person. Even the most detestable among them. And John would admit, even after all I saw, when I saw him hung on the cross, and I saw him breathe his last breath, I thought hope was dead. I thought he just came up short. But something happened. Something that would change history. Once again, a stone was rolled away, and once again they sat in disbelief. Jesus had defeated death, and now there was no looking back. Now they were, the mission was so clear. Now everything made sense. The movement no longer feared death. They were so passionate of what they witnessed, and their testimony was so undeniable that death and torture and persecution would not stop them. And John would tell you, I was there. I can't explain everything. I mean, I'm just a simple fisherman. I don't know why he chose me. But I'll never forget what I saw. And because of what I experienced, because of what I saw, because of what I heard, I believed. And I pass this on to you that you may believe and have everlasting life. John 20, 31. But these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for these seven signs that we've studied over the last seven weeks that John documented in his gospel. And Lord, admittedly, at times, it feels like we're putting faith in faith, but as John would lay it so clearly out for us, that you came and that you loved a world that was sick and sinful and hurting, and you had a plan. You had a plan to redeem humanity. And after doing these seven signs, you chose to lay down your life. You chose to take on our sin and our shame. And you chose to die on the cross as the perfect sacrifice for our future sin and shame, that we may have eternal life. That the, the that death is not the end, that death is just the doorway to our eternity when we put our trust in you. So God, I pray for those that are listening out there right now. I pray for those that maybe have never made that decision to put their trust in you and to, to live a life that follows after you. I pray, God, that 
in their own way, in their own quiet moment, that they would make that commitment and that their lives would be changed. That they would never live the same way, that, they would, that, their, that their eternity is sealed. And they, they would tell someone about it. They would look for someone to come alongside them and walk with them on this journey. We, and God, we, we're so grateful that we serve a God that sees our pain, grieves with us, and then promises one day we'll see your glory. Lord, we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.